All right, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're still on page 992 of the Blue Pew Bible. If you don't have one, you can feel free to follow along with us there. And I want to start this morning by talking about something that you experience every single day. And yet, it's something that you probably rarely think much about. In fact, I imagine all of you did this this morning. And it is the psychological impact of looking in the mirror. What happens to us, what happens within us, when we look in the mirror? So this was the internet rabbit trail I went down this past week, and I'll share why in a moment, but I found that studies show, because of course there's studies about looking in the mirror, because why not, um, that the majority of people uh, take a quick glance in the mirror, because there's a correlation between the length of time one spends looking in the mirror and how critical of their own appearance they become. The longer you look, the better chance it might activate these critical or negative thoughts about yourself, particularly the things that you don't like. And there are mirrors everywhere. You have mirrors in your homes, in your apartments. There are mirrors in the retail stores, mirrors in the gym that make you look way more jacked than you actually are. There are we use car windows as mirrors. You all do it, all right? We walk through parking lots, and then you take the opportunity just to take a quick glance in a car window that serves in that moment like a mirror. And most people, according to these studies, look long enough to make sure nothing's glaringly off, but not too long where it might trigger negative thoughts about ourselves. And so with that, there is, and it's all across the spectrum for different people, some level of angst of looking in the mirror. It shows a reflection of what's there that we might be nervous to see. And so as I went down this rabbit trail and the way my brain works, um, and just pastorally, like my, my, the wheels are turning in my mind of how much there is to address there and how we as embodied people are tempted to define our value and our worth based upon the world's perception of beauty. Um, and how Christians are empowered to see our worth in God's eyes, not in the world's eyes. That's not the reason why I started, but that's where my kind of mind started to go. But the reason I did start thinking about this is because I have found that preaching through 1 Timothy is kind of like a church holding up a mirror to itself. In that this letter in particular is written to a church, but about the church. About the household of God, which Paul will call it in the passage that comes up next week. And in terms of gospel centrality and the importance of structure and order and purpose and mission, this is week after week, like stepping in front of a mirror of how a church ought to be designed according to God. And just like individuals, as a church, there can be and is some angst when we do so. We might be encouraged by what we see in 1 Timothy and what it reflects back to us. Or we might be afraid of what we see. And the reality is, it's probably been a little bit of both. And I have to say that part of me has realized over the last couple of months, you know, like I thought, you know, going into the series, like I find it interesting that it seems a little bit rare that churches go verse by verse through the book of First Timothy, right? So for churches like ours that preach expositionally through books of the Bible, uh, the other letters usually get, are way more common, relatively speaking, to First Timothy. And I was going into it, like, I wonder why. And now a couple months in, I'm like, I think I know why. There's a little angst in me, like I'm about to step in front of a mirror again this week and bring our church in front of that mirror. But I'm still glad we're doing it, and there's no turning back now, all right? So we press on 
And what we have seen up to this point is chapters 1 and 2, Paul has identified really some foundational issues at the church in Ephesus where Timothy has been sent. And it has exposed, among other things, a poor leadership in that church. And so now, moving to chapter 3, and in anticipation of Timothy having to instate at least some, if not all, new leaders in this church, Paul provides these qualifications for two separate offices, or two uh, kind of formal roles within the local church. Last week, we went over the qualifications for elders, and this week, next passage, is the qualifications for deacons. And so we're going to pick it up in chapter 3. Verse 8, I'm going to read to 13. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their, li- their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. All right, we have a lot to unpack here, as we normally do, both in the text and then really, again, with the mirror up against ourselves to see how this applies here at Grace Church. But I want to repeat something that we've talked about over the last couple weeks, and I think bears repeating, so just for the purpose of clarity and affirmation, that the end of chapter 2, which we saw two weeks ago, and now chapter 3, which we've seen last week and then this week, include topics that true believers can and do disagree about. And denomination to denomination and church to church, um, these topics of how a local church ought to be led and governed, specifically with the relationship between men and women in carrying out the mission of God, are topics where true believers can disagree. And it is a conversation that tends to have more heat than light. Have you heard that phrase? There tends to be more heat with this than there is light, meaning there's more division than illumination. And so I'll repeat again that there are Christians who love the Bible. Equally, love the local church equally, long for the church to be healthy and functioning as God designed, and they will land in different places with these topics. And so at this point, I think it's helpful to talk about kind of the way we view theology and doctrine at Grace Church, and that, uh, and we go much deeper into this with uh, our membership class, but I'm going to be brief here, is that we think about it in three tiers, tier one, tier two, tier three. And we see that all theology is important because all theology ought to be rooted in God's word. But hear me, all theology is not equally important or clear in the Bible. All theology is important, but even the Bible itself does not portray all theology as equally important. And so the tiers that we think about are the doctrine that we would die for, the doctrine we would defend, and the doctrine we would discuss. First tier is doctrine that we would die for. We think this is the, uh, the highest level of importance of theology that gets revealed in the Word. It is uh, the theology that we think is clear enough where it's required to be a Christian is to hold to some of these theological distinctives. Um, so uh, to, to be a Christian, let alone to be members of the same church, uh, tier one, being in lockstep with one another, is vital. It's the doctrine we would die for. And then second tier is the doctrine we would defend. And this is where there tends to be topics where there's more heat than light throughout the church. 
And what we're saying here is that true believers, again, can disagree. To an extent, believers in the same church can disagree. But each denomination, or in our case, a non-denominational church, chooses to land somewhere in these second-tier doctrines and then carry out their ministry accordingly. And so in this, you have church government, you have the doctrine of baptism, you have men and women, women, men and women in leadership along with some others. And then third tier is that what we say is doctrine that we discuss. And these are doctrines that believers can disagree, and the church doesn't really need to have an official stance. Um, so one example would be a belief of the order of events in the end times, right, with the millennium. Uh, we can discuss that because the Bible talks about it, but there's really no need for a church to have an official stance on that or for believers in the same church to understand and be in alignment with each other. So I, I give that context, uh, again, that we go much deeper on in our membership classes, but in 1 Timothy, just in the first half that we've been preaching through, we have been exposed to first-tier and now second-tier doctrines. The chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 talks about the centrality of the gospel, the foundation of God's grace and salvation, the need for false teaching to be rooted out of the church, all first-tier, all doctrines we would die for. And then, in the latter half of chapter 2 into chapter 3, there has been tier two doctrines, church government, men and women in the local church. And so we at Grace have convictions and practices with all of those doctrines. But we are far more convictional about the tier one doctrines in chapters one and two and want our emphasis to reflect that. Um, and then in tier two, and particularly in the area of church government, we would love to have alignment with everyone in the church. But it is okay if there is disagreement as long as, uh, one, your, your conscience is clear that we're being clear on where we're getting our convictions and how our practices flow from that convictions. Um, if you were to see that our ministry practice is done in a healthy way, uh, even if there is some disagreement, and that, again, you could be here and do ministry here in good conscience, that, that these tier two things, if there's disagreement, it's not necessarily a hindrance to faithful and fruitful ministry in the local church because we're in lockstep in tier one, right? So the way we view and practice the role of men and women as it relates to the office of elders and deacons, which we've been talking now for a couple of weeks, is that the office of elder, uh, we have the conviction, is to be held by men. And then the office of deacon is to be held by men and women. Now, again, there are true believers and healthy churches who hold that both should only be held by men, elders and deacons, that there are offices that should both be held by men. And there are true believers and healthy churches who hold that both uh, elders and deacons should be interchangeably held by men and women. And so Grace's conviction has been and seeks to be missional. We seek to be kingdom-minded and Christ-saturated like other churches who might disagree with us on this. But whereby our conviction is that if we're going to be faithful in carrying out our mission here in the way that God has designed us to, then we must, not optional, we must engage and deploy the leadership giftings and teaching giftings of both men and women we have at Grace, while also affirming the conviction that the office of elders to be held by men. Now, to some, that might sound like the classic compromise, the classic middle ground to try to please everyone. And I concede that people think that, and that you might think that, and I can tell you, I don't take it personally if you think that. 
But I hope you can trust me when I say that we truly uh, practice this out of a conviction of Scripture. Not saying that other views don't, but that's just where we land, that we see the shape of Scripture uh, holding the office of elder to be by men and the office of deacon to be men and women, which we'll unpack today. And we move forward with that mission of the church and our practical day-in and day-out ministry of utilizing both men and women to accomplish it all in all of our distinctions and our dependence upon one another is vital. All right, so with that backdrop, let's talk deacons. And we're going to start with the foundation for deacons, number one. What is the foundation for deacons? So in the broad sense, all believers are deacons. Right, that's, that, that, that's the bottom layer. In the broad sense, all believers are deacons. In that the Greek word, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, by diakonos, literally means a servant-hearted person. The Greek word that we get our word deacon from literally means a servant-hearted person. And diakonos, in this sense, is a heart posture that all believers have when we place our faith in Jesus. That when the Holy Spirit indwells us, it increasingly sees us and shapes us and forms us to be servant-hearted people. And the vast majority of the times that word diakonos is in the Bible, the translation is servant. And it refers to Christ's followers broadly. So again, all believers in the church are deacon-like because we are disciples of the ultimate deacon. The ultimate deacon in the Bible is Jesus Christ. And if we strive to look more like Jesus in our life, we will grow in our deaconing. So let me show you this uh, from Scripture. Uh, it was Jesus who took this common word in the Greek culture, diakonos, and he elevated it for the people of God. So in the first century, Roman Empire, diakonos referred to servants who did mostly menial tasks, um, mundane daily tasks, both in society and in the home. And there was a sense of it being a lower class in Rome. The diakonos was the servant class. And Jesus came, and Jesus did what Jesus does. And he ushers in the upside-down kingdom of God that challenges the kingdom of the world. And we see this most clearly in Mark chapter 10. In Mark 10, uh, Jesus' disciples were positioning themselves to be the greatest amongst the disciples because that's what people do. We're all about ourselves. And they're trying to position themselves who's going to be at the right hand of Jesus when he reigns as king. And so they're positioning amongst themselves who's going to be the highest level. The highest honor. And then Jesus says this in 42 to 45. It's on the screen. And the word servant is the word diaknos or deacon. So I'm going to kind of read it as if deacon is in the word of servant. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your deacon. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be deaconed, but to deacon, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus takes this word, low class, common in Greek culture, and he aligns it with the climax of the work he has come to do in this world, to go to the cross and give his life for many, has been, is an example of Jesus being the ultimate deacon. The disciples, though, were pretty slow to learn this, as I'm sure we would have been, too, if we were in their shoes. Because fast forward to the Lord's Supper. 
and which is the night before Jesus was arrested and then crucified, uh, Jesus began that supper, do you remember, by washing the feet of the disciples as they entered the house, which was traditionally the job of a house deacon or a house servant. And then during the meal, what happens? In Luke 22, we find the disciples again are in a dispute with each other. And what are they arguing about? Who is the greatest amongst us? And Jesus says this in 22, verse 27. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or the one who deacons? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who deacons. So Jesus Christ is the ultimate deacon. And in the broad sense, all believers are called to deacon and be deacons in the upside down kingdom of God. It's a call on every one of your lives. And then there is also a formal sense of being a deacon. And this gets introduced in the pastoral epistles of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, where deacon is an office or a position in the local church. And their purpose is to be lead servants by ministering to and caring for the church in very specific ways, thereby building the church through service. Deacons build the church through service. And in the culture, a deacon was a low-class role, but in the church, in the upside-down kingdom of God, it is a leadership role. You see how he flipped it. You're low-class in the culture, but you're a leader in the church if you're in the office of deacon. It has real authority with it. And its authority is found and rooted in service. So that's number one, the foundation for deacons. Let's keep going to number two. The relationship between elders and deacons. What is the relationship between elders and deacons? Two different offices. Well, the first mention, or I think example, of the office of deacon is found in Acts chapter 6. I can't say this is where it started. It's likely not where it started, but it's the first mention of it in the church in Jerusalem. And in that church, which grew pretty fast, do you remember? Like 120 to 3,000 in one day fast. All right, it put the megachurches today to shame. All right, 120, boom, Pentecost, church of 3,000 members. And a complaint arose that a certain aspect of the congregation's needs were not being met, were being overlooked. And particularly, it was widows who were not of Jewish descent were not getting cared for and the food distribution that uh, widows of Jewish descent were getting. And the elders recognized the need when that concern was brought to them. But they knew they wouldn't be able to adequately address it themselves because of their role to oversee and shepherd the church. It's not that this role was below them. It's that they knew if they were doing their role as elders, they would not be adequately able to serve in this way. So what did they do? In Acts 6, they went to the congregation and they raised up seven deacons and empowered them with the authority to oversee this particular ministry and meet those needs. Again, probably not the only deacons, but the first time deacons were deployed for this ministry. And as a result of that divided work, that healthy divided work of the intentional statement of deacons in that way, the needs were met. And then Acts 6 says, and the word of God continued to increase in the church, and the number of disciples multiplied. So not only does it address specific needs in specific ways, but in the total tapestry of the church, when those needs are met, the word goes forth, the church grows. So between 1 Timothy and Acts 6, we get an understanding of the relationship between elders and deacons in the local church. 
First, as we covered last week, it is the congregation as the highest authority in the church that assesses men who are qualified to serve as elder and then ordain this plurality of elders who together provide oversight to the spiritual life of the church, the theology, the teaching of the church as the shepherds of the church, prioritizing the ministry of the word and prayer, it says in Acts 6. Then, as the elders govern and set the visionary direction of the church, they raise up, along with the congregation, men and women who serve as deacons in leadership capacities to carry out the vision effectively in ways they could not do themselves. So again, I, I keep going back to this word. You see that the, the tapestry of the church is laid out in 1 Timothy chapter 3. With the congregation having the highest authority to instate elders with governing authority to empower deacons with ministerial authority. There's the relationship, the congregation with the highest authority to instate elders with governing authority who empower deacons with ministerial authority. And then all together, when that is working well, the whole church is equipped for the work of the ministry, Paul writes in Ephesians 4. That the whole church is equipped to make disciples to the glory of God. And so church government is not defined by superiority or inferiority because Jesus never thought about it in that way. Whoever's going to be great, you have to be least. He never thought about who's superior in the church. But he did order distinctions in the church for the purpose of unity and the purpose of mission. Which leads us to now to number three. The vital role of deacons. The vital role of deacons. If I can put it as simply as I can, just as a church cannot be healthy without qualified elders, so too a church will not be healthy without qualified deacons. There is no set number of deacons that a church should have. It will relate to the size of the church, how much ministry that church is doing, and how much ministry is to be carried out to carry out the vision of that particular church. Uh, deacons are assigned to specific ministry in areas of need throughout the church, and they carry out those responsibilities empowered by the elders who oversee them. And they're not just good to have, they're vital, essential. And deacons, as leaders in the church, are also crucial to the unity of a church. That deacons, together, cultivate a community of harmony and mitigate conflict. They don't elevate conflict. They don't add to conflict. They mitigate conflict. And that eye towards unity is very much baked into the qualifications that we're going to see in a moment. All right, got to pause here. Because I imagine many of you, especially if you've been at Grace Church for a long time, have an awkward question at this point. And a pressing question. If all this is true, why doesn't Grace Church have the office of deacon? So, I want to pause and give some historical insight to Grace Church. Those of you who were here during this time when those changes were made, uh, I think I'm saying this right, but I'm open to correction. Uh, Grace Church's government, up until the early 1990s, was a board of trustees and a board of deacons. That was a common setup for non-denominational churches and some Baptist churches that were founded in the time period that Grace was founded, in the middle of the 20th century. And the practical outworking were two leadership bodies. The Board of Trustees oversaw the business side of the church, and the Board of Deacons oversaw the spiritual side of the church. Uh, that might be an oversimplification, but I think it's essentially what it was. Two governing bodies, business side, spiritual side. Well, when the church was in between senior pastors in the early 90s, and they were commencing their search, there was, and I don't know, obviously, wasn't around then, of what those conversations looked like or how they started or how they went, but there was agreement that that model was not really working. 
because there came to be tension between those two boards. There was a tension of authority. There's a tension of when any, like who, who's the deciding vote, if you will. And so they took time to revisit it. To Grace Church's um, credit, they held the mirror to themselves. Is this the best way to operate a church? And so the congregation, again, don't know how long this discussion took, but the congregation voted to disband both boards and, and then form a board of elders in new bylaws. Elders who govern the church, oversight of the ministry and shepherding, and then, um, as the Bible outlines the elder's position, and then instated or uh, continued standing committees. So there's a finance committee, an admissions committee, and a nominating committee, and a facilities committee, who, along with ministry leaders, like in children and youth and adult education and hospitality, others were carrying out specific leadership roles. So board of elders, standing committees, ministry leaders. That was true then, starting in the early 1990s, and that's still true today. And how I have been describing it is that those committees and those leadership roles are operating in the function of deacons, but to avoid confusion when they made the change, since the church has some history with tension with the title of deacon, they avoided calling them deacons. And so there are chairpersons, chairman, chairwoman, and then ministry leader titles. I say that all to say this, the mirror's up in front of us, and conversations that began with the elders back in 2021 are ongoing to reinstate the office of deacon. Uh, that wouldn't necessarily be a real structural change, but I think it would be biblically aligned in the way we talk about it. And we plan to continue that discussion and roll it out later this year, because ultimately it's the congregation who's going to vote on it, that this is not the elder's decision this would be something the elders are proposing to the congregation to approve. So, all right, history lesson over. Um, and I hope the greater point remains that the deacons in function and in office play a vital, not an optional role in the local church. Which leads us to number four. And now we finally get to unpack this list of qualifications in the passage we read. All right, don't get nervous and look at your watches. We're good, all right? We're just now breaking into the passage of the qualifications of deacons. That was a nervous laughter. I know it was, all right? We're, we're, we're okay, we're okay. Qualifications of deacons. If you remember last week, the umbrella qualification for elders was above reproach, and everything else kind of flowed from that phrase. So too, the umbrella qualifications for deacon is right there in verse 8, if your Bible's still open, dignified. Dignified is the umbrella qualification that everything else will fall under. And again, this is a trait that is rooted in character and not charisma. Meaning, this umbrella trait is who the person is and not their giftings or abilities to get stuff done. So charisma does not outpace character. Nor does ability to work hard and just be that man or woman who can just get things done, that does not offset bad character. If a deacon is not dignified, another synonym for that is respectable, then they are disqualified. If a man or woman is not dignified, then they are disqualified to serve in this leadership capacity. Nothing else matters. We're not making a statement about somebody's faith. We're not saying that you're not a Christian if you're not dignified. But if there's not a public uh, evidence of being dignified, then it is not appropriate for you or for the church to step into the role of deacon. So you might say, okay, well, how do you define dignified? What's it mean to be respectable? I'm glad you asked. 
Because Paul tells us with three negative traits and three positive traits. Here's what it means to be dignified. Starting with number one, not double-tongued. Another phrase is double-talk. They engage in double-talk where somebody says one thing to one person and another thing to another person, especially within the local church. And there's no consistency. How they're acting and what they're saying is only dependent upon who they're talking to. And they change their convictions or they change their words based upon who they're addressing and who they're around. So again, uh, I don't think it's too much of an imagination for you to see how this can negatively impact the church where I act one way around this person because I want to say what they want to hear, and I know what they want to hear, so I'm going to tell them what they want to hear. But then I turn around, and I'm going to say something to that person because I want to tell them what they want to hear. I might even be talking negatively about the person that I just pleased in the conversation before, but now I need to switch gears to now the new person I'm talking to. It's double talk. And if for somebody who engages in this double talk, you kind of sit back at the end of the day and go, who is that person really? Like, 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 like what is their true self? They're always angling for themselves and thereby sowing disunity in the church, losing people's trust in the process and hurting the reputation of the church. So not double-tongued. Second negative trait is not addicted to too much wine. Not addicted to much wine. Um, Again, pretty simple. They are disciplined people. They resist from indulging in cravings or substances that would hinder their work and hinder their witness. Again, it's not um, disqualifying as a Christian to say you might struggle with alcohol or other cravings. But if there is a very public struggle that you're showing a lack of discipline, at this point in your life, you're just not qualified to be a deacon. That's not shame on you. That's wisdom for you and for the church. And then three, not greedy for dishonest gain. This means that their whole lives are not lived through the framework of enriching themselves. And I see everything through the angle of how do I get richer, both financially, which we'll see later in the letter, money was an issue for the church in Ephesus, but also rich in your reputation, um, where it's not all about them, and every relationship's not an angle in how to lift you higher, um, and then use that power to uh, really lord it over others. Remember, die. Uh, diagnosis, right? To serve and not be served. I don't live my life to be served and lord over others. Three negative traits. Now we go to three positive traits. Paul writes, they hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. Um, When Paul says here and elsewhere, the mystery, he is speaking of Christ. The one who was revealed to be the savior for all people. Because the mysterious question all throughout the Old Testament is this. How is it that the God of the universe can forgive those who rebel against him? It's the question that looms over the whole Bible. How is this possible that I can be in a relationship with God? It's a mystery until Christ is revealed. And it means that deacons have a grasp of the gospel. It has a grasp on the doctrine of Christ and who he is and what they've done. That they're, they're affirmed and comfortable. They're, there's a level of maturity in their knowledge of the faith. And convictional in that belief. And that conviction will come out in the various ways that they serve in the church. Next positive trait is tested and proven. Tested and proven. They were not rushed into the role they were serving in. There was a time of observation of their character first. There's something that time cannot replace to just be around someone, to just get to know them over time. Do not rush them into this office. Let, 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 it just, let time just do its thing and trust that who they are will be revealed in time. 
And so, it's, and they also should be tested in their gifting, but not before their character. Test them in their character and then in their gifting. And then number three, family life. Third positive trait, that as with the elders, a deacon's evidence of godliness must begin with their closest relationships in their family. There's no such thing as a good deacon who is a lousy spouse. There's no such thing as a good deacon who is a lousy parent at home. All right, that brings us to verse 11. Let's talk verse 11. If your Bibles are open, this is important. Here's where there is disagreement among Christians in interpretation. But each church needs to decide where it's going to land. So in the ESV, the translation that we use at Grace, verse 11 says, Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. If you see in your Bible, there's likely a footnote next to the word wives. That's because if you look at the bottom of your page, or if you click it, it's on your phone, that word can be translated either wives or women. Translations that say wives will have a footnote that says or women. And vice versa. Translations that say women will have a footnote that says or wives. The vast, vast, vast majority of translation differences in words do not impact the truth or interpretation of a scripture. This one does. Because Paul is referring either to deacons' wives, presuming that deacons are to be held by or to be an office held by men, or he's referring to women deacons. Presuming deacons can be men and women. And as I said earlier, our cards on the table, our conviction is that the proper translation is women, thereby implying the affirmation of both men and women in the office of deacon. I'll try and be quick as to why we land there. Uh, that Greek word that can be wives or women is used eight times in 1 Timothy. The first five examples are all in chapter 2. And it's undisputed there, across translations, that Paul is referring to women and not wives in chapter 2. If your Bible is still open, you can remember that and recall that all the times he talks about women in chapter 2. He's speaking to women. Those are the first five examples. The last three examples are all in chapter 3. The ESV translates it as wives because the other two uses are in the phrases husband to one wife. I don't think, and our conviction here at Grace, is that Paul would not change the meaning of the same Greek word from one chapter to the next. So the best reading in those two other cases is a husband to one woman, not a husband to one wife, which conveys the same truth of faithful marriage, faithful spouse. And then here, he's addressing the women in verse 11 and not wives. Furthermore, if he was addressing deacons' wives and had qualifications for the wife of a deacon, then he would have also given qualifications for the wife of an elder in the previous passage, but he doesn't. There is no qualifications for an elder's wife, so I think it is misaligned to say that there is a qualification to be a deacon's wife and not an elder's wife when an elder is an office just like a deacon. Also, Outside of this passage, it seems Paul directly refers to a woman deacon in his letter to the church in Rome. You don't have to turn there, but in Romans 16, um, when he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Centria. That translation of the word deacon there is best as a formal deacon and not an informal servant because the word in the Greek has a masculine ending to describe a woman which conveys Paul's talking about an office and not a description. Last, 
uh, we have a lot of evidence of churches just a generation removed from Paul in the early 100s from letters uh, between believers referring to women as deacons. And not that I know of any who talk about elders or women as overseers. So maybe that was too fast, but that is a, just a little bit snapshot of why we land where we land. It's not just 1 Timothy 2 and 3, but it includes these reasons in 1 Timothy 2 and 3. So in that sense, women likewise in the office of deacon must be dignified, which is the same umbrella term encompassing the qualifications of men, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Descriptive terms that very much align with the descriptive terms of the male qualifications. So all in, our conviction is that deacons are for men and women, and it practically plays itself out here in that deacons are the primary ones carrying out the ministry. And church needs the giftings and ministerial leadership of both men and women because, again, we are distinct from one another and yet dependent upon one another to make disciples of all nations. So that was fast and a lot, and I'm always willing to follow up, eager to follow up with anyone who wants to talk more. But it, you can probably even see in that why this conversation can tend to be so heated. Because there's admittedly open questions wherever you land. Um, and here's how now I want to finish and bring us home. Coming off these two last passages, which again, I know might sound more like lectures than sermons. But Timothy is now... From here, reading this exhortation from Paul, he's got to turn to the church of Ephesus. He's got to go and teach the whole church about qualifications for the office of elder. He's got to teach the whole church about the qualifications for the office of deacon. And when you zoom out and look at the whole picture, we see more clearly here than anywhere in the New Testament that elders, deacons, and members of a congregation are all needed to carry out God's mission. The reason why this is so vital for a church to be clear on and to land somewhere and then act accordingly is because all of ministry to make disciples is going to be rooted from a healthy leadership structure. And if any of those three bodies are aligned, elder, office, or member, a church will struggle to carry out its calling. It will struggle to build up one another in the faith and to reach the city of Ephesus with the gospel. In fact, I would say the biggest problem plaguing the church the last 2,000 years was not external persecution, but misalignment from within. Misalignment between their elders and their deacons and their uh, members. I think starts with the elders, but then flows down. But when they are unified in their calling, as we believe, and I want to say this with intellectual humility, that we believe they are unified in our calling at Grace Church. And that is by the grace of God that is true. Not just now, but starting back in 1946 when it began. That is a gift to us currently. Because when a church is aligned and unified, it is unleashed to play our part in the story that God has written for us. And that, our story, in this little corner in North Jersey, dot in the map, we're going to live and be faithful, we're going to die and be forgotten. But we're going to play our little part well in this corner because it's part of a bigger story to build the church. And that's a story that Jesus says himself, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so to put it this way, to end where we began, when we as a church step in front of the mirror, we can see a true reflection of ourselves. And what we see is we're not perfect. And anyone who's been here for more than two minutes can say, yeah, you're not perfect. But we can affirm 
that we are unified in the way that God has called us. And that prayerfully we will continue to be woven together in this tapestry at Grace Church where people will grow in their faith and where others will awaken in their faith for the first time. And when I say grow, I mean primarily grow in the most eternally impactful thing imaginable for you and your children, that our knowledge and our affections for Jesus Christ will grow at this church. And it will grow in the most eternally missional call imaginable and that we will be equipped together to make Jesus known to the ends of the earth from Little Corner and Ridgewood. Because we are told in his word, and we feel this in our souls, even though we try to deny it, every time we step in front of the mirror, this life is a wisp of smoke. It's here, and it's gone. And we're working, and we're going, and we're going all out, and then just like that, one day it's going to be over. And we're going to be done on this earth. And then we're going to go on to glory, and we're not going to look back. And when we get to glory... We won't be consumed with who played what role. I don't think we'll be consumed who was elder and who was deacon and who was member. Because before the Lord, we will not be ranked in glory by the role we had or the capacity that we gave. We'll all come before the Lord and the chorus of angels. And because of the blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf, our Father in heaven will say, Well done, good and faithful deacon. Come on home. You must be tired. So let's not get prideful, but let's not get discouraged. Let's fix our eyes on him and recognize we've been given today, and we're not going to waste it. Let's pray. Father, we continually thank you for your word. We grieve in the times where we fail to adhere to your word, where I personally fall short in this, and I fall short in my leadership in this. And yet, Lord, I pray that we would continually draw our eyes back to you, that we are on common ground at the foot of the cross, and we are dependent upon you for the next moment, for the next day, for the next year, if you will that for us. And so, Father, I pray for this church, that we would have the posture of servants, lead servants, as we fix our eyes upon you, the ultimate servant, Lord. We thank you. We are motivated by you. And we close in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.